unscripted. Each episode is available to view on YouTube, so be sure to check us out. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Alex, what, what are you thinking right now? I can tell I mean, their thoughts run through you. No, this is just, I mean, it's like I said, I really didn't have a, a ton of knowledge on this stuff. And so this is, it's heavy stuff, you know, and, and I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm learning this now because this is obviously a huge part of, of the church's history. And, and I don't really have much else to say other than like, wow, <laughs> you <laughs> know, owl. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome back to Saints Unscripted. Another very special guest today, we have W. Paul Reeve. Paul, before we get into this, do I call you Paul? Do I, what is, yeah, of course. Paul. What is, can I ask what W stands for? Walter. Walter, but yes, you go by Paul. I do, yeah. Okay. Fight between my mom and dad over my name. Okay. Um, and both of them think they won. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to go with it. Paul. Um, Paul here is... Oh man, where do I even start? Okay, so you've you've written a book, uh, Religion of a Different Color, uh, that came out what 2015. 2015. Yeah. You are also the president of Mormon Studies at the University of Utah. Um, so Simmons Chair of uh, Mormon Studies at the University Simmons of Utah. Simmons Chair. Okay. Yeah. Um, tell yeah. us what else you're involved in. What are the projects you have going on right now? Uh, so. Uh, Myself and Legine Carruth and Christopher Rich have a manuscript uh, under review with Oxford about the 1852 Territorial Legislative Session. All the speeches that had never been transcribed before that were recorded in Pittman shorthand, Legine transcribed, uh, and it's just provided a flood of new information about that legislative session that passed um, a Black and uh, <clears throat> Servant Code as well as a Native American indenture bill. Hmm. And so the debates over that um, have created an opportunity to provide a new history of what took place in, in the 1850s regarding race and slavery in Utah Territory. Uh, so that's under review. It's out to outside reviewers with Oxford. And then we have a document collection as a result of that that we're also um, looking for a home for. Great. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and that leads us into our topic for today. So we're talking about the priesthood ban, which is, of course, a very controversial subject. It's one of the main subjects of your book and a lot of the other work you've done and a lot of the work that you're doing. Um, this is going to be interesting because we, you've got kind of a spectrum of an audience here. I'm a little bit more familiar with uh, this subject than maybe most. Alex is on the spectrum of maybe learning a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's not really a ton that I know about this topic, and so I'm really eager to to learn more about this. Yeah. So, and then most of our audience probably also is wanting to learn more about this. So um, maybe let's try to focus in on the beginning of the priesthood ban and hopefully the end, if we can cover a little bit of it. Um, but one of the questions a lot of people have is, where did this start? Did it start with Joseph Smith or did it start with Brigham Young or someone after? What's the deal there? Yeah, so uh, for me, I think it's it's best to think about the racial restrictions in three stages. Uh, the first couple of decades, there's no indication that there were uh, racial priesthood or temple restrictions in place. So no evidence at all that will trace this to Joseph Smith. 
We have no known statements or no indication that he's barring men of Black African descent from priesthood ordination. Uh, we have a first presidency statement uh, in 1840 in Nauvoo that their intent for the temple that will be built uh, is that they specifically say will be open to people of all color. Really? Um, that's in the times and seasons. Uh, and it's, uh, on, you know, under the um, first presidency that issues that. So uh, there really is no indication. Um, so open priesthood and temples, segregated priesthood and temples, and then 1978 returns us back to our universal roots is how I see it. So we really can look to uh, Brigham Young for the beginnings of the racial restrictions. Hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the context of how this restriction becomes implemented or, or where does it where do we first hear about it? So the interesting thing for me is, uh, you know, Brigham Young is on record as late as March of 1847 as favorably aware of a black priesthood holder. Q. Walker Lewis mm -hmm. is ordained to the priesthood by William Smith, who is Joseph Smith's younger brother and an apostle at the time, uh, ordained to the priesthood in Lowell, Massachusetts. Uh, and Brigham Young is aware of Q. Walker Lewis and not just aware, but favorably aware. In other words, uh, you know, that's he's not saying, oh, that's a mistake. He's saying we have one of the best elders in African in Lowell, a barber. All of that information matches up with what we know about Q. Walker Lewis. He is a prominent barber, uh, an outspoken abolitionist, uh, and an ordained elder in the Latter-day Saint priesthood in the Low Massachusetts branch. Um, Brigham Young's been there. Wolf Woodruff has visited there. We have letters. Uh, we have Wolf Woodruff, actually, his, his journal, and he talks about Q. Walker Lewis as a black man who's an elder without any sort of indication that there's anything wrong with that. This is just normal in what we do. Um, and, you know, that's the same with Joseph Smith. We have this sense that he is sanctioning uh, priesthood ordination for, for black men. So uh, March of 1847, then December of 1847, we see a pretty dramatic shift in Brigham Young's attitude. Uh, but it's not until uh, um, January and February of 1852 that he's openly uh, articulating a racial restriction for the priesthood. So we go from March of 1847, we have one of the best dealers in African, to January and February 1852. Uh, I know that uh, Black people are descendants of Cain and are cursed from the priesthood. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a pretty dramatic transformation in Brigham Young's articulation about who black people are. Do we know why he changed his mind? Yeah, the indication seems to be concern over race mixing. So um, March of 1847, Brigham Young is interviewing uh, William McCary, who's a black Latter-day Saint at Winter Quarters. And McCary is complaining to Brigham Young that uh, he's experiencing racism at Winter Quarters. Uh, and you know, I think indications are that that's true. Uh, and Brigham Young and the rest of the Quorum of the Twelve who were present at the time, and remember Brigham Young is leading the church as president of the Quorum of the Twelve. He hasn't reconstituted the, fir the first presidency at this point. Uh, try to reassure William McCary. And that's when he says, uh, you know, to William McCary saying, well, I don't, I don't have any positions of authority in the church and I'm being treated unfairly because of the color of my skin. Brigham Young says, look, we don't care about the color. Uh, he paraphrases Acts 17.26. Uh, we're all descendant of the same blood, right? Um, we're all a part of the broader human family. 
Uh, it's a pushback against what was called the polygenesis theory in operation in the 19th century that races are so distinct, there must have been separate creations even, separate species. And religious people said that's a violation of uh, the, the biblical creation narrative. There's only one creation. We're all descendants. We're all a part of this bigger, bigger human family. And Brigham Young says that to William McCary. And to reassure him, we don't even discriminate in distributing priesthood authority. We have one of the best elders who's an African. Mm -hmm. He goes to the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, and then returns to winter quarters. And on December 3rd, 1847, meets with a man by the name of William Appleby, whose job in 1847 was to survey the conditions of the branches on the east coast of the church. And uh, William Appleby uh, goes to the Low Massachusetts branch and he meets Q. Walker Lewis. Uh, and what he's more disturbed by is that Q. Walker Lewis's son, Enoch Lewis, is also a member of the branch, but Enoch has married Mary Matilda Webster, who is also a member of the branch, uh, but she's white. Mm. And they have a child together. And there's race mixing going on in the low Massachusetts branch. And William uh, <laughs> Appleby is scandalized by this. Uh, he sits down and writes a letter to Brigham Young in June of 1847, as Brigham is on the way to the Great Basin, we don't know when or if he gets that letter, but William Appleby meets with Brigham Young on December 3rd, 1847, back at Winter Quarters. So Brigham Young, remember, goes to the Great Basin, uh, helps uh, to get the uh, uh, colony established in the Salt Lake Valley, and then returns to Winter Quarters. And he gets firsthand report from William Appleby of uh, his over 2,000 mile journey along the East Coast from branch to branch. And uh, we have 13 surviving lines of that meeting that drags on for over four hours. And those 13 surviving lines are drenched with concern over race mixing. Mm -hmm. And we know from William Appleby's own journal, um, after he writes this letter to Brigham Young, he also writes in his journal, I've never been so disgusted in all my life. Wait, this was this was Appleby this writing is this in his journal? Appleby, uh, when he's uh, with, with Low Massachusetts, he actually visits Enoch Lewis and Mary Matilda Webster in their house and sees their child. And he says, this is the worst. He says, I've never been so disgusted in all my life. Uh, oh, woman, where is your shame? Speaking Ooh. of a white woman marrying a black man. Oh, my goodness. And never been so disgusted that they're actually members of my faith. Wow. Wow. So this gets back to Brigham Young. So we don't know what's said in that meeting. Like I said, it goes on for four hours. It got 13 um, surviving lines, and those lines are really drenched with concern over race mixing. And Brigham Young, for the first time, but not the only time, uh, says that the penalty for race mixing should be death. Mm. Oh, my goodness. It gets really uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, and... Brigham Young and Orson Hyde and other people who were involved in that meeting um, seem to be sort of drawing upon uh, ideas articulated by Josiah Knott, who is, uh, you know, suggesting that race mixing produces sterility in the next generation. He, he has some prominent publications in the 1840s in the U.S. Uh, where he's suggesting that if you put... Um, black people and white people on a deserted island and their only options are to mix races, eventually that population will die out. It produces sterility uh, and 
really speak stridently against race mixing. And Brigham Young uh, seems to be tapping into these kind of ideas um, and speaks out stridently against race mixing and says, you know, if if Enoch and Mary Matilda Webster are anywhere apart from the quote unquote Gentiles, uh, you know, the penalty should be death. And that's in a private meeting. He'll return to it in the Salt Lake Tabernacle Journal of Discourses um, in the 1860s and also say the penalty for race mixing is, is should be death on the spot. Um, so pretty strident uh, positions on race mixing. He also then learns that William McCary, the, the man that he had interviewed in March of 1847, so the height of his open racial attitude in March, right? And he learns that when he when he returns to winter quarters that William McCary has started his own schismatic group. It's based upon um, uh, sexualized sealing rituals to white women. Um, and when that comes to light, William McCary and his followers are all excommunicated. And William McCary never returns to the Latter-day Saint faith. But you have two examples then of race mixing that Brigham Young is confronted with, and he seems to be really concerned about race mixing. If you don't give black men the priesthood, they're not going to be allowed into the temple. We won't have to deal with interracial marriages. His February 5th speech uh, in 1852 has a very long section on race mixing, where he is again speaking out stridently against race mixing. He will say to the territorial legislature in 1852, uh, let's take a hypothetical scenario. Let's say that all the elders of Israel mixed their seed with the seed of Cain is the way that he says it in, in February of 1852. It will bring destruction upon the church. No one will be able to hold the priesthood. Uh, we will be in ruins. Um, that's the way that he is imagining this dire scenario. And and of course, not in, in an attempt to justify any of this because because these kind of statements aren't justifiable and they're not defensible and the church has disavowed these kinds of ideologies. Um, that said, this isn't something that is necessarily unique to the church at this time. Is this something, are these ideas prevalent in the broader society? Yes. Yeah, so, so fear of race mixing is, is definitely uh, <laughs> animating American concern. Uh, so the vast majority of states going into the Civil War have laws against race mixing on the books. But, you know, there are some laws that, that prescribe uh, capital punishment for uh, black men raping white women. Mm-hmm. But Brigham Young is only talking about marriage. Um, so in terms of what he's articulating as the potential you know, consequence, he's really extreme, even in a very fraught 19th century American racial culture. Mm-hmm. But race mixing itself, yes, is, is uh, outlawed by the majority of states in the nation. Now, Massachusetts uh, had lifted its ban on interracial marriage, and, and the marriage between Enoch and Mary Matilda Webster was legal according to the laws of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean socially acceptable, obviously, because yeah. William McCary is uh, disgusted by it. And also concerned, he in his letter to Brigham Young, he says, do we allow black priesthood ordination? So his two questions are, do we allow black priesthood ordination in this church? And do we allow interracial marriage? Amalgamation was the pre-Civil War term for that. And he uses that word in his letter to Brigham Young. Amalgamation is a word borrowed from metallurgy, meaning the mixing of metals to apply to the mixing of races before the word miscegenation is invented uh, in the 1860s. 
Alex, what, what are you thinking right now? I can tell I mean, there are thoughts running through your head. No, this is just, I mean, it's like I said, I really didn't have a, a ton of knowledge on this stuff. And so this is, it's heavy stuff, you know, and, and I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm learning this now because this is obviously a huge part of, of the church's history. And, and I think this is very important stuff to talk about and to, and to learn about. I don't really have much else to say other than like, wow (laughs) you know yeah exactly so it sounds like the cultural cards are kind of stacked against church leaders at this time again not an excuse but but it provides context but are all is like is the whole swath of church leadership on board with brigham young when it comes to these ideas is there pushback yeah there's definitely pushback especially in the 52 legislative session now remember the context for uh you know some of this conversation the legislative session is not debating uh, racial priesthood restriction and in fact um circumstantial evidence suggests that the restrictions were in place before the legislative session as early as 49 you have a conversation that's taking place in a private meeting where you have Brigham Young laying out his rationale for a racial restriction uh, in response to Lorenzo Snow who says you know what can we do for people of African descent uh, for redemption those kind of things and Brigham Young then will articulate um, his uh, early ideas about racial restriction uh, but it's the first public articulation that we have in the legislative session. And the context is they're debating this uh, black servant code. What laws will govern uh, the relationship between white enslavers and the black enslaved uh, who are in, already in Utah territory? In fact, three enslaved men arrive in the Salt Lake Valley on July 22nd, 1847, two days ahead of Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. They're a part of Orson Pratt's advance company. Uh, 23 wagons, um, 42 men. This is Green Flake? Uh, Green Flake, Oscar Crosby uh, Smith. Uh, so he's enslaved to the Crosby family. Once he is free, he will take the last name of Smith rather than the name of his enslavers. And the same with Hark Lay, who's enslaved to the Lay family. Once he's enslaved, will take the last name of Wells. Those three men are a part of that advance party that arrive on July 22nd, 1847. So in other words, um, slavery arrives ahead of Brigham Young even. And we're in a, we're creating a new territory. So um, laws in the South had governed <laughs> slavery in the South amongst these enslavers. And some of these enslaved people are also baptized Latter-day Saints. Mm. Wow. So, so you have We've got Latter-day Saints enslaving mm-hmm. Latter-day Saints. Exactly right. Wow. Exactly right. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Greenflake and Oscar Crosby are rebaptized in 1847, uh, which is an indication that they had a prior baptism. Um, and this is mm-hmm. typical in the 19th century, right? Um, uh, immigrant groups who arrive in the Salt Lake Valley more often than not will be rebaptized as an outward symbol of their recommitment in a new land, right? To the Latter day Saint cause, reconfirming their commitment to follow Christ. Uh, it's a pretty typical ritual in the 19th century. And there's also circumstantial evidence that Hark is also a baptized Latter day Saint, although he's not rebaptized in 1847, according to surviving records. So 
all three of them are likely baptized Latter-day Saints and enslaved by their fellow Latter-day Saints. So what laws will govern that relationship is one of the things the legislative session is debating. And they pass uh, a law called an act in relation to service to answer that question. But the debate over that law then produces uh, Brigham Young's open articulation of racial restriction and also pushed back by Orson Pratt. Orson Pratt. Orson Pratt. So remember, we have all kinds of uh, overlapping roles yeah, <laughs> between sure. politics and religion in 19th century Utah Territory. Orson Pratt is a LDS apostle and a legislator. Brigham Young is territorial governor and prophet president of the LDS faith. Uh, the legislative body is uh, comprised of entirely Latter-day Saint men. Uh, and... Latter-day Saint leadership is heavily represented amongst the legislative body, and they are debating then servant code as well as a Native American indenture bill. And Orson Pratt uh, wants both bills rejected. He sees both bills as uh, forms of slavery and says they should just be rejected outright. We should uh, not introduce slavery into a territory where it doesn't already exist. We'll be under greater condemnation than enslavers in the South who inherit slavery with laws already in existence. Why would we introduce it here? Why would we introduce it? Um, and he calls uh, people of Black African descent uh, innocent, right? Um, why would we shackle them with uh, um, these notions of curses? Uh, he says that curses are not multi-generational. God may very well, you know, in ancient times have cursed specific people, but that's relevant to them. He's given us no authority in 1852 to do the same thing. He's pushing back against longstanding Protestant and, and Christian uh, notions about curses of ham, curses of pain, rejecting all of them. He, in 1856, says, in fact, in another strident anti-slavery speech, we have no proof that Africans are descendants of Cain. That's the only articulation uh, that Brigham Young ever gives for the racial restriction. People of Black African descent are cursed descendants of Cain. Cain killed his brother Abel. As a result, all of Abel's descendants, who Brigham Young presumes to be white people, will need to receive the priesthood before any of Cain's supposed descendants, who he presumes to be black people, before they can receive the priesthood. And Orson Pratt doesn't buy that. Mm. We have no proof, he says in 1856, that black people are descendants of Cain. And hopefully it goes without saying... They're not. They're not. <laughs> Those are just uh, a part of the broader Judeo-Christian tradition, ideas that have been around for a couple of hundred years before the church is even founded, right? Yeah. And Brigham Young is bringing those kind of ideas into the Latter-day Saint tradition and giving them theological weight, using them to justify racial policies. It's my understanding that that uh, even with these statements from Brigham Young in the 1850s and 40s, the general membership didn't understand this this policy, this doctrine, whichever, whatever you want to call it, they didn't understand it to be fully articulated or set in stone until much later. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so even with Brigham Young articulating this openly uh, in, in 1852, those speeches are never published in the Deseret News or in the Journal of Discourses. So he speaks uh, January 23rd, 1852, most stridently February 5th, 1852, never published. Um, and Orson Pratt's speeches never even transcribed from their original Pittman shorthand until mm -hmm. Legene Carruth, who works for the Latter-day Saint uh, Church History Department, 
transcribe them uh, as as a part of uh, uncovering these new speeches in research for my book, um, Religion of a Different Color. So the racial priesthood restriction, uh, even though Brigham Young articulates it uh, openly by 1852, uh, isn't set in stone by that point. It still is going to, uh, you know, have to grow and take on uh, accumulating precedent. There are still future leaders who are not sure what to do. Uh, so 1879, uh, a black Latter-day Saint elder, Elijah Abel, applies for his endowment and sealing rituals. His wife, uh, who's also a Black Latter-day Saint, uh, Mary Ann, uh, has died in 1877. He wants to have his love for her sealed for eternity. And, and he's a priesthood holder. He's a priesthood holder, sanctioned by Joseph Smith, ordained in 1836, an elder in January, and by December, a member of the Third Quorum of the Seventy, which is a missionary unit in the 19th century, received his Washington anointing rituals in the Kirtland Temple. Mm -hmm but wasn't in Nauvoo when the endowment ceremony was introduced. So remember, uh, the temple rituals were only up through the Washington anointing ritual in Kirtland, and then the endowment is added by, by Nauvoo. And he would like to see, receive those crowning rituals of his faith. And John Taylor in 1879 isn't sure what to do. So if the racial restrictions are unambiguously in place as late as 1879, the leader of the church is unsure what to do about that and opens an investigation, allows Elijah Abel's priesthood to stand, but prevents him from temple admission. Hmm. And Elijah Abel serves a third mission for the church as a black priesthood holder at 73 years old and returns wow. back a year later uh, in, in 1884. So called on a mission in 1883, goes to Ohio, comes back in 1884 and dies on Christmas Day in 1884, a practicing black priesthood holder, exhausted from his last mission. And then all the way up through 1900, we have Lorenzo Snow as president of the church in 1900, saying that he doesn't believe these racial restrictions are set in stone. Hmm. We have George Q. Cannon's uh, journal that indicates this. They are addressing another question that comes into them. And George Q. Cannon says in his journal, well, I said to President Snow, you know, isn't this resolved? And President Snow says, no, I don't think it is. I don't think this is set in stone. But he dies uh, a year later. Joseph F. Smith becomes uh, uh, the prophet. And I think it's under Joseph F. Smith that the racial restrictions are finally solidified in place. In 1908, he falsely remembers back that Joseph Smith had revoked Elijah Abel's priesthood. Mm -hmm. And in that false memory, the suggestion is that the racial restrictions were in place from the beginning. They had always been in place. God put them in place. Human beings can't do anything about it, and it will take a revelation to get rid of. Hmm. And in fact, 70 years later, it does take a revelation to get rid of. But that false memory then suggests that priesthood and temples had always been white. And that becomes entrenched in the 20th century. Uh, what uh, the leadership and the membership comes to believe is true, that these were in place at the beginning, even though there's no historical evidence to support that position. It's just kind of this idea that this is the way it's always been, so this must be the way God wants it to be. It's exactly right. But it is true, though, that Joseph Smith, like many others in all Christian faiths around him, uh, did believe in the curse of Cain. Is that true? Not, not necessarily the curse of Cain, but the curse of Canaan, um, uh, which is Ham's son. So in 1836, uh, remember, the Latter-day Saints had been driven from Jackson County, Missouri in 1833 under the charge that they had invited free blacks to the state of Missouri to incite a slave rebellion and to steal our white wives and daughters. So fear of race mixing. 
yeah. projected onto the Latter-day Saints almost from the beginning, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and in that context, um, and there's this immediate abolitionist movement that really animates concerns over race mixing in the 19th century. Those who oppose immediate abolitionism, and when I say immediate abolitionism, what I mean is uh, we must free the slaves, not gradually, but immediately. Oh, and turkey turn them all loose, four million of them. Even those who are opposed to slavery doesn't mean that um, you weren't racist. It means that you don't like slavery because it violates the founding principles of the nation. Mm. Mm. Uh, but you don't want white black people moving north and intermarrying amongst white people. So um, the idea was, well, we'll send them to Africa. Uh, there's the colonizationist movement where, uh, you know, they purchase land in Africa, um, Liberia, and they want to send freed black people to Africa to remove them beyond the reach of mixture is how Thomas Jefferson articulates it, which is wow. ironic Jeez. given his relationship with Sally Hemings. But um, nonetheless, that's sort of the prevailing attitude in the 19th century. And so Joseph Smith uh, speaks out against immediate abolitionism. The theory is you turn, you know, uh, 4 million black people lose, they don't have jobs, and they will automatically just, there's the black be beast rapist idea that black men just want to rape white women. They will intermarry, um, darken the white race, make it unfit for democracy. Those are the things that are at stake in, in people's minds. And so Joseph Smith's statement in 1836 comes out of that context. So he buys into, in 1836, the, the, the trope that Black people are descendants of Ham through Canaan, his son. Um, the curse of Noah is placed upon Canaan. Servant of servants you will be. And Joseph Smith does say that in 1836. But remember, by 1844, he's moved in a very different direction because his presidential platform articulates a position of emancipation uh, and uh, uses the founding documents of the country, the Constitution, to say those founding principles of liberty and equality are meant for all people, including Black people, and proposes uh, an emancipation bill, uh, government-funded emancipation, meaning that you will compensate enslavers out of government coffers, you'll sell Western lands as well as reduce the salary of congressmen, which is really a great idea um, that <laughs> uh, I love, but obviously didn't get a lot of traction amongst congressmen in the 19th century, uh, to compensate enslavers for their loss of property. And he says we can accomplish this uh, by 1850. So it's not explicitly immediate emancipation, but it's a much shorter version of gradual emancipation than the 40 years that a lot of the gradual emancipation laws were were enacting. So and, and regardless of whether or not Joseph at some point believed in a curse, it clearly didn't translate into a priesthood restriction. That's exactly right. Yeah, there's no known statement from, from Joseph Smith on a racial priesthood restriction. And in fact, the evidence indicates otherwise that he's sanctioning the ordination of black men to the priesthood. You had mentioned previously that Brigham Young's 1852 territorial legislature speeches were um, partially a response to some of Orson Pratt's um, activities or, or opinions. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Uh, the other important piece of context to keep in mind is that Orson Pratt is actually uh, advocating black male voting in 1852 in Utah Territory. He's suggesting that black men, as they're debating the election bill in the 52 legislative session, he's suggesting that black men should be included in the right to vote. 
And Brigham Young on the 5th of February stridently pushes back against that. So a part of the context for that most strident uh, priesthood restriction speech is in a pushback uh, against Orson Pratt, uh, whose proposal is to allow black men the right to vote. And Brigham Young will say, uh, we just as well give mules the right to vote as Negroes and Indians. Mm. Yeah. Um, and we're making a lot of those faces in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Paul. Oh, stop it. Yeah. This is, this is heavy history. And he says what we're trying to do today by, you know, this proposal to give black men the right to vote, what we're trying to do today is to make uh, black people equal with us. And my voice will be against that all the day long. The very same speech where he says black men are cursed descendants of Cain and can't hold a priesthood. All of those ideas are in the very same speech. So maybe just to wrap up, a lot of people within the church believe that maybe for unknown reasons, the priesthood ban was instituted by God. Others believe that it was not. But either way, there are these indefensible statements and ideologies. I mean, personally, I think the whole band is indefensible, but but you clearly have Brigham Young saying these things that the church has clearly uh, said, no, that's that's not true. That's not right. How do you and how can we and our audience reconcile these statements with the idea that Brigham Young was also a prophet of God? Yeah. Those are the really challenging questions. I think for me, uh, because I'm a historian, I'm accustomed to messy history. And I'm accustomed to the fact that all of us, all human beings are capable of both uh, good and bad. Uh, and, you know, do we trap people in uh, their worst moments? I hope that I'm not remembered for, you know, the worst things that I've said and, and, and done. But um, the good that we do also doesn't necessarily cancel out the bad. Uh, we can sure. be both. We are complicated and messy people. When you give people agency, you give them the right to make mistakes. And that includes profits. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, I think... Uh, what better person than Brigham Young to lead uh, 12,000 people uh, westward and preserve them as a people? He seems to be uh, the right person for that task, uh, successfully preserving them as a people, founding over 300 colonies throughout the Intermountain West, uh, preserving the Latter-day Saints. But uh, that doesn't then mean that it excuses uh, his racism from 1852. Brigham Young can be both. Uh, but for me, uh, the long-term picture of things, uh, Latter-day Saints believe in eternal progression. It's this profound doctrine that is really distinct amongst Christian believers. Um, you're not just stuck in hell, fire, and damnation for eternity. We actually believe in eternal progression. So I just don't imagine Brigham Young is somewhere in the eternities stuck on his position from 1852. I believe that he has repented, that he has progressed, and he would love for the church that he led to do so as well. 
And if our response to this is to circle the wagons and try to, to deny or defend Brigham Young's position, I think we're doing him and ourselves a disservice. He has progressed. We can allow him to progress. We need to progress. Uh, his position from 1852 is clearly wrong. It's drenched in racism. Racism didn't become a sin in 1978. It's always been a sin, uh, even when prophets engage in it. Uh, so for me, allowing them to be human beings, uh, that's all that God has to work with, um, is fallible human beings. And, you know, uh, I think that is simply an aspect of faith that Latter-day Saints should be willing to engage with. And, and in the engagement uh, can, in fact, strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. It's an idea that looks good on, on paper sometimes, but then when you come face to face with some of these real issues, it, it's a lot more challenging for a lot of people to implement and, and believe. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I think it's difficult to kind of grapple with that. Um, sometimes as Latter-day Saints, we love the security uh, of certainty. But if you vote for a gospel plan grounded in agency, agency means you voted for a plan that didn't guarantee certainty. And uh, that you are going to have to deal with messiness and messiness might actually cause you to exercise some faith, to stretch your faith, to think through things in ways uh, that you might not have before. Um, and I think you can strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ in the process. Uh, the first principle of the gospel is faith in Jesus Christ, not in Brigham Young, not in Russell M. Nelson. And there's a reason for that, because... Uh, only Jesus Christ has the power to save us. We don't need an infallible prophet if we have an infallible Savior. Well said. Well said, yeah. <laughs> any final, Alex, did you have any final thoughts, questions? I don't, other than I really like that you said that, that pro, I mean, really just the idea that prophets are people just like us. I think it's hard to to imagine that, I think, at least for me, a lot of people maybe tend to think that God controls what the prophet does and he has full control over everything that we're doing and all that but but it's important to remember and I'm glad that you brought that up that prophets are not perfect by any means they're just like the rest of us and that's what he has to work with I I can't really say it any better than you than you said and I, I really learned a lot from that so thank you yeah you're welcome well and I, I love the, the way that you articulated that if we view the relationship between God and humans as God is the puppet master and the prophet is the puppet mm -hmm. that's actually a violation of the plan the plan that we voted for is grounded in agency yep. and god's never going to violate that mm -hmm. paul where Thanks. can they uh find some more of your stuff maybe talk about history of or um oh, what's it called century of black mormons century of black mormons <laughs> sure so centuryofblackmormons.org uh, it's a website that is hosted at the marriott library at the university of utah it's a digital history project where we are simply trying to identify every known black Latter-day Saint baptized into the faith between 1830 and 1930, the first 100 years. Mm -hmm. There are over 100 people in the database uh, so far, and by the time we're done, we'll be over between three and 400. And this is the other thing that the racial priesthood and temple restrictions do. Uh, if you suggest they were in place from the beginning, you, you're erasing black Latter-day Saint pioneers from Latter-day Saint history. 
The first person baptized into the faith of black African descent is 1830 in Kirtland, Ohio, and there have been black Latter-day Saints ever since. Uh, and so Century of Black Mormons is just simply uh, uh, biographies of these various individuals, but we are documenting their lives and we will know how many of them were ordained to the priesthoods. Uh, some of them pass as white. We'll have answers to a variety of questions. How many were enslaved at the time they were baptized? Those kind of questions will uh, have answers by the time the database is complete. In short, an extremely valuable and needed resource. Thank you. Great. Paul, thank you so much for being here, guys. Thanks for watching. Hopefully we'll have Paul on for another episode or two. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening. If you want to watch our videos, check us out on YouTube or shoot us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.